The Funambulist Podcast by Léopold Lambert. Today, forensic investigations of design destructions in Gaza with Eyal Weisman. Hello everyone, today my guest is Eyal Weisman, who is the Director of Forensic Architecture, as many of you would know, um, and uh, we are recording this conversation uh, for the next issue of the Phenobolist about design destructions. Uh, hello Eyal. Hello. Good evening. Uh, thank you very much for talking to me today. Um, I think, as I was telling you a little bit in the preparation of this conversation, I think there's already there's been plenty of interviews in which you're explaining what forensic architecture really is about. So I think uh, I, we will, I will redirect uh, listeners to those conversations and even provide them those conversations to, for them to really understand what it is about. But I think what I'm really interested to talk about today is precisely this um, uh, this idea that um, be, behind the behind the chaos of the debris of destructions there is a, a very strong order and strategize uh, a strategy uh, that is involved behind it that we might not be able to see like that and I think a very important part of your work is to precisely making it visible this strategy and uh, as a sort of geographical trope, <coughs> as a geographical um, focus, we will talk in particular about Gaza and even more specifically about Rafa, as we will see. But so maybe to, to, begin, um, to begin with this concept of design destructions or the, the design of attacks in the same way that we would design architecture building, architecture project, uh, could you maybe uh, tell us about this um, the this, uh, this, this concept and uh, how it might bring us back to um, the genealogy of forensic architecture itself and, and how, um, how it might involve uh, what, you, what you call the, 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 the fact that so many people die in bombardments from the building collapsing rather than the bomb itself, but also how there are bombs that are designed to precisely attack the building in a very specific specific way. Um, I mean, I guess I'm getting too, too specific here, but uh, could, <laughs> more globally, can you tell us? <coughs> it's all right. That, uh, bless you. I, I, uh, could you could you tell us your your thought about this notion of designing an attack in the same way that one would design an architecture project as an architect you are yourself and. I think that uh, that the um, well, first of all, hello, and mm -hmm. great to speak to you. I think that the that the problem of um, design, whether it is designed by destruction or whether it is by various infrastructural or construction problem, is a problem of government, the government of people in space, and we need to understand that the city is a kind of an apparatus of government. And to operate as an apparatus of government, it has always to change. So, uh, we can speak about um, the way in which we can read power, a power diagram from um, a image or a plan of a city as it exists, as it emanates from squares or around boulevards, 
But what interested me always is that the act of governing space is the act of transforming space. That, um, and in a sense, it's a kind of an anti-panopticon sort of uh, model of thinking because in the Foucauldian panopticon as a kind of, let's say, the kind of almost kind of most classic example of the relation between power and space uh, and subjectivation, um, the space exists. It always, uh, it is a static space in which relations of power inhabit it in particular ways, making use of the physical characteristics. I was always interested in thinking about governing in space as space in movement, space in transformation. The moment of power operate on space is the moment it transforms it. Because, of course, uh, when you have an understanding of power as that which comes through force field, through continuously re-articulated force field, um, no existing static shape can contain the flux of forces. Therefore, space and the space of the city has to be continuously transformed. I, the moment in which power operates is exactly the moment of the cut of a street or a pathway through you know, slums or uh, you know, old medieval neighborhoods or uh, an act of constructing something, right? And then the diagram of power would change and transformation would have to come again. Therefore, there is no immediate ontological division between construction and destruction. We're speaking about the political plastic as a category includes both construction and destruction. It is really the way in which political forces slow into form. Okay, so this is um, one way of looking at it at the scale of the city. The shaping of the city through cutting forms through it, cutting squares through it, cutting boulevards through it, cutting networks of nodes uh, that, that connect and circulation system through it, is an act of government that operates... Uh, by design, it includes simultaneously both construction and so it's simply the reorganization of matter across the surface uh, of the earth. Now, with the increased precision of munition for uh, remote sort of fire at a distance, like smart bombs, so called, or smart drones, or uh, etc. Uh, what you have the problem of design by destruction somehow is articulated not so much as a question of the urban but a question of, of the building itself. It kind of goes down to the scale of the building. And through various uh, sets of transformation, the, the logic of violence from the kind of 19th century housemanization to, you know, bombing uh, in Iraq or in Gaza or in Syria, starts submitting itself also not only to the question of governing a particular population um, 
on a local level, but is interested in political issues, in governmental issues that are global. And, and the global or universal dimension come to be applied through principles of international law and for principles of human rights. So the minute that enters, you start having other forms of calculation that are articulated under the one of the, or let's say, the two fundamental principles of destruction remotely in war by air power are um, distinction. Are you bombing civilian or are you bombing uh, mili uh, military targets? And then in between them, there are all sort of like gray areas that the military would say, these are dual use, right? Every bridge in a city that is a civilian bit of infrastructure could be declared as dual use, and because dual use, I, that also military could use it. And um, effectively, the lawyers would authorize its, uh, its bombing. The second principle is proportionality. And that is to do really with calculation. This is really where a certain logic that I've written about as the logic of the lesser evil enters into the calculation of, um, of attacks um, in which a certain balance, a certain limit, certain set of limits needs to be articulated. And... Um, the calculation is to do with the question of life and death, with a certain necroeconomy. Uh, and the example that I give, I don't know if you want me to, to repeat it now, maybe it's, it's quite well known, but um, uh, I've written about it and spoke about it quite often, was that when the U.S. military entered into Iraq, it wanted to finish the war really on the first day. It wanted to kill all the heads of the Ba'ath Party and Saddam obviously and his sons and Hassan Majid and others. But these people were all um, hiding in, in high-rise or high-density parts of town and the bombing needed to keep to a certain proportionality. Proportionality calculation did not lead to uh, a command to the Air Force planners to design the bombing in such a way that they would not exceed 29 civilians. Now, regardless of whether it's 29 or 30 or 42, um, a threshold is being drawn between sacrifice and, you know, excessive killing. Necessary sacrifice and excessive killing, of course, the sacrifice of the government, of other people, no, not, not, yeah. not their own, not people that they're accountable for. Um, but that leads to another form of calculation. I, the bombs themselves become agents of design. The bombs themselves start sculpting out buildings, start removing floors or removing parts of buildings or um, uh, several roofs, etc., uh, in a way that um, the problem of destruction is not kind of binaric one. Yes, no, that building needs to go or remains, but about calculation, about proportionality, about shape. 
proportionality, material proportionality is the kind of design, the, the allowing of principles of international law to sculpt out the ruin. The ruin itself becomes a product of a certain juridical calculation. Um, and this is, and, and to know how to do it, bombers needed to learn something of architectural principles. They needed to know um, urbanistically how many people enter this building a day at night, at particular hours of the day or night, um, how a building is held, uh, how much glass there is on it, and how that interacts with explosives. Now, the disturbing thing about all that is that the person that was in charge of this calculation for the U.S. military in the run-up to the American invasion of Iraq in the spring of 2003 uh, was a man that later became one of the first forensic architects. And I, I've actually entered into that arena of forensic architecture. He, he, he was forensic architecture avant la lettre. <laughs> But I've entered it not through a kind of um, um, it's, you know, it's kind of like finding something that is uh, an amazing tool which is unproblematic, but I entered into the field of forensic architecture through the deepest and most uh, darkest critique that one could approach of it. I, that art is a dark art. That art is an art of assassins. This guy um, has developed forensic architecture or kind of a reading of buildings. Later he was human rights analyst for at the time of the Goldstone Report up in 2009. But that um, he have, has undertaken, he knew how to analyze the ruin and to see in the ruin the history fossilized history because he was a targeted assassin and that paradox that the reading and analysis of something is derived from you know from that kind of um, depth of um, you know I mean this is kind of like one of the most disturbing coincidences that I could that I could find uh, has inspired me to develop forensic architecture as a critical practice, uh, not simply as a kind of as a set of tools and techniques that one can easily apply it without deep self-questioning. <laughs> um, I'm going to change a tiny bit the way I was, I was thinking uh, to, to, to lead this conversation, and we'll, we'll finish with uh, maybe more... Uh, uh, the, Philosophical uh, aspect aspect yeah. of it and critical aspect of it, but maybe to actually follow up on what you called earlier the necroeconomy, and to address one particular case that forensic architecture as a collective uh, research group uh, with, at uh, Goldsmiths University in the University of London uh, has been doing. Could you could we maybe tell us what this? Um, um, investigation of Black Friday uh, in August 1st, 2014 in Gaza uh, was was about, and then we, we'll talk also about what it, what it means in terms of this necroeconomy mm. that you, you evoked. Mm -hmm. So, 
imagine that after 2009, uh, in fact, in 2010, the article on forensic architecture was emerged. That was the, 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 the beginning of forensic architecture emerged with the deepest critique of forensic architecture articulated in an article in Radical Philosophy in 2010, uh, less than a year after the end of the war. Um, four years later, after writing a critical architecture uh, uh, essay on forensic architecture, we end up in the shoes of Galasco, the person that has done the analysis in 2009, we now do it. Now, you know, there's various, uh, in this article, I go through various problems in forensic architecture, one of them being the implication, somehow, in the Goldstone report that relied on this analysis, that human testimony is silenced by uh, material reading, by reading of buildings. A building would speak so that the witness would remain quiet. And that was very much articulated in 2010. 2014 was a very different, you know, it was only five years later, but it was a different space, both juridically, technologically, and politically. So juridically, was it in April leading up to that um, attack? Um, Palestinian civil society has been successful in forcing the PA and also Hamas and Islamic Jihad to all sign and ratify the Rome status. That means that, in principle, now the court operates very slowly, it's very inefficient, it's very uh, ineffective, but it operates for a shadow certain shadows start to be cast on Gaza. And uh, it has influenced, to a certain extent, both Palestinians and Israelis during that uh, war. And technologically, during that war, um, whereas there were smartphones and cameras and all that, in 2009, they, would, they didn't have the level of penetration that they had in 2014, in the summer of 2014, and um, and people just had there was just a lot of cameras, and whether it was because of the ICC or because of other things, people started photographing around them continuously, just photographing everything they saw um, happening. Sometimes risking their lives to do it. So the kind of evidence that we had. Unlike Galasco, we were not allowed in. Galasco did a sort of classic archaeology of the ruin, you know, like haptic archaeology of, of the material, of the concrete. Uh, we had 7,000 clips and images that came out of a single day in Gaza, August 1st. And it's a very different kind of evidence. It's... Um, a video clip that somebody shoots is something that is between an evidence and a testimony. Firstly, because when people shoot, they speak also. So you always have language and you have vision. Second, they're very personal. Uh, they come from a particular perspective. They are a record both of the person that have taken them and the object that has been taken. You know, every camera records from both sides. 
they record the thing that the lens is aimed at and they record through the movement and the smudges and the blurs they record also the person that has taken them although they, they, it's not photographed but looking at at blurry images at this kind of like fastly drawn images it's like looking at an object through a double way mirror through a, gla- a semi-reflective glass and you see both the subject and the object simultaneously superimposed one on the other and and so we had these kind of bits of evidence which was very different than what um Alaska will had to work with him. and um and the architecture here operated also in a in a in a very different way because we we were asked to uh to look at a particular incidence of of economy or economy of life uh and death um which was the one day in the Gaza war um twenty four hours seven in the morning august first seven in the morning uh, august second in which a certain kind of tragedy unfolded and that is to do with the Israeli command called the Hannibal directive that is designed to um for the army to avoid the capture of one of their comrades when he's captured by uh, uh resistance before they are taken uh in and kind of taken out of the battlefield uh the army is is allowed to risk in a certain extent also to kill that soldier as a better option to them being taken and the reason for that is precisely that economy that unfolds the minute that a captive is being taken now the history of the Palestine conflict has one of the greatest dramas that always unfolded about it was about hijacking or uh, capturing kidnapping depending on the terminology in the situation at the beginning it was civilians in the very famous uh, plane hijackings and then um, when Israel went into Lebanon it it started to be soldiers but the aim was always when you capture a person from the other from 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 Israel you force Israel into a recognition a recognition that speech would would acknowledge right you are here as a subject i can speak to you i must speak to you right and Israel would always say we would never negotiate we would never recognize they did not even recognize the the captured palestinian fighters as legitimate fighters they were tried as criminals and they had no chance of being released um because they were mostly tried for life etc and the only way to release them was to capture an israeli but when an israeli was captured another economy emerged and that's an economy of exchange of uh the prisoner exchange economy So it started with you know several dozens for one and then several hundreds for one, and then with Gilachali you no know, thousands for one and um in a kind of an economy of of human value that seemed to kind of reflect slavery you know i mean when you kind of trade in lives, this is remind you of you know 
you say an Israeli life worth thousand Palestinian life? No, but that who who puts this economy? It's the Palestinians that put the economy mm-hmm. in a way to on the way to break uh, an economy of inequality. So, but so maybe speci- specifically, I think uh, uh, that's really something I'm I'm really really interested in in this story um, because not only do we not only should we look further than like, oh, the, the Hamas got a great deal for Gilad Shalit because he got 1,027 Palestinian yeah. prisoners to be liberated. Then the, the subtext in that is, uh, is that one Israeli life equal 1,000 Palestinian lives. So uh, we, had a, we have uh, the very definition of racism operating in front of us. Like one life is not equal to another life. And... What's really remarkable in the case of Black Friday that you, and the Hannibal Directive that you that you look at is that it's not just one life equal one life, and it's not just twenty nine acceptable. Uh, uh, I mean, I know it's the U.S. Uh, the U.S. Mm-hmm. doctrine, not the Israeli one, but it's not it's not just twenty nine acceptable civilian deaths to justify like one. Uh, um, general of uh, Saddam Hussein or whatever uh, being assassinated. It is actually the proportion of acceptable civil, Palestinian civil, civilian death to kill, not to save, to kill an Israeli uh, soldier for for him not to be kidnapped. So there's there's yeah, a sort of another double, economy. Yeah. Into, so yeah. there's a sort of double um, double perversity in this in this sort of economy. Uh, this what you called the necroeconomy earlier. Uh, so maybe could you could you tell us more about this this act of killing? Uh, uh, so when you how do you kill a captured soldier? Now obviously. If you are a resistance fighter, what you would do, you take it into the heart of, you know, density or where there's other people, and you try to disappear in the crowd, right? And the crowd is something that cannot be bombed, even not, um, you know, by any standard of international law. So the proportionality calculation also had to shift at that moment. And that was very, very controversial because Israeli lawyers decided when you have proportionality you calculate kind of necessity versus adverse effects no and you say well if there's great necessity we can let's make it simple kill more people kill more civilians for it uh, and if it's less important we can kill less right now the the kind of military necessity can only be articulated vis-a-vis military threat by international law. But the Israelis kind of completely skewed the proportionality principle here by saying, actually, if Palestinians take that soldier, Hadar Godin, and finally would be trading it, the soldier against thousands or more Palestinians, then there will be a biggest risk for Israel in the future, perhaps in the far future, for which we are allowed now to kill more Palestinian civilians, right? So the minute Hannibal Directive starts, the proportionality calculation shifts. It's no longer X per, you know, X civilians that the military is is willing to risk or kill. 
but it's like n time x. No, it's many many times that. Um, but the absurd is that the calculation of proportionality is articulated in relation to something that the Israeli government could simply say, well, we don't we don't want to exchange. Now, what happened in the, in Hannibal is that the army doesn't trust Israeli society. Israeli society is very averse to keeping its prisoners in Palestinian hands, which is another kind of, you know, it's almost like, also shown another dimension of racism, no? I mean, it's not, uh, it's as if it's held by cannibals or, the, or something like that, by savages. So the army would bomb and kill civilians, would kill the soldier, so that Israeli civil society would not be able to pressure the government to order the military to release. So effectively, it's an act between the government and the military. It's not in the, no one else, because the military itself or the government could simply say, we do not release that person, or that person should stay, and we would release one-to-one. That is, um, I think, the uh, where the, the proportionality get completely uh, ridiculous calculation in which political calculations about future risks is entering into calculation of ammunition or influencing calculation of ammunition in a particular point. So that that economy has many many levels to it, but it kind of show you to what extent. To what extent this is um, a violence today is a kind of a result of calculations, and um, but because the event happened in an incredibly dense uh, urban area, that kind of evidence became crucial because everybody started taking photographs. And somebody took a photograph of some tanks going, somebody took a photograph of some civilians running away, somebody took a photograph of a smoke plume, another of a building that was burning, another of a car that was destroyed, etc. But you needed to piece all that together because we needed to create and present a kind of a situation that is not the classic situation that you have in analysis of Israeli violence on Palestinians. It's kind of an inverse world, a world upside down, by which the Palestinian tried to save an Israeli soldier, the Israeli army tries to kill an Israeli soldier, and on the way kills Palestinian civilians and also resistance fighters. Um, maybe st- still still uh, on, on that case, something that I find particularly interesting is the way uh, that that has to do in a broader way in the way forensic architecture operates at a judicial level in a, mm-hmm. as a as a, um, a provider of proof um, in some international uh, trials and how the um, the status of artists and architects and filmmakers are, are being are being charged against you as a sort of non um, as a non um, very valid expertise yet part of what you part of the way you manage to recon, reconstitute what happened on this uh, dreadful day of the August 1st 2014 was 
specifically by uh, using uh, artistic uh, artistic uh, um, uh, methods and I'm thinking here of the of the plums and how you actually used a technique of 19th century's representation of clouds as a way to as a way to understand when were how how a cloud actually is the same than is the same than another on another video and so so there there is an actual artistic expertise that you can that mm -hmm. you, you can use in in this context could, could you maybe just address that for for a little bit yeah so first of all um although you know everyone dealing with forensics understand the power and the necessity of aesthetic operation both in looking at images, looking at material, looking aesthetics in, in the sense of the sensorium, um, and also in the way that you present, in the way that you represent material later in court, the kind of the gesture, the theater that you kind of produce around them. We also know that to present truth or to present facts in court, if you refer to the word aesthetics, you're lost. Right, because aesthetics is mainly understood as a, a kind of as a trickery, or as a you know something that is fictional, that is not really the truth. Simply lies there. Uh, but of course, we know how hard it is to produce and how important aesthetics is in this production. Um, but um, of course, when you work. When, when, when the evidence that you have, but you're not allowed to enter, that the evidence that you have are 7,000 images and clips, image practitioners are incredibly important. And when it is buildings or vegetation that you need to look at, so remote sensing experts on uh, vegetation index are very important. And if it is... Um, and if it is to do with um, with testimony, uh, documentarists are extremely important. So there, there is there is a, a kind of a necessity to pull together a multidisciplinary group that can deal with the wide spectrum of aesthetic relation of memory, of image, and of matter. Right? Then you have organic matter, non-organic matter. And to each one of those material substances, there's a different set of aesthetic operations that, that are in place. The particular thing that you refer to with the, with the plumes was that our necessity was really, the, the, in, in, in looking at this kind of flood of images, is the first thing is to say where and when each one was taken. The only way to understand a narrative through so many images is not to look at any image in isolation, but to look at the relationship between them in time and space. Where is that in relation to this, in relation to that, etc., etc. So we try to locate them by matching the perspective of buildings, where they were, with the built perspective that we built in 3D. Uh, and we try to establish the time by shadow analysis, but we couldn't do that because sometimes the shadow was too far. Um, and then we realized that we were looking at the wrong half of the image. A lot of images, like here in your cover of the recent Fernando release, has a kind of a half 
sky in it. No? Sometimes it's just simply a backdrop. But we understood that in the sky, there is the physical clock that we were looking for. And that we can sync up the entire battle by looking at um, the clouds and mapping the clouds. And for this, we needed a kind of, not a very sophisticated contemporary meteorology, which is all modeled and computerized, but a kind of analog meteorology of Howard, of uh, John Ruskin, uh, of a painter like Constable and others. We're constructing all sorts of ways to triangulate sky, uh, clouds in the sky in order to build their perspective of, of landscape painting. And for us it was in order to actually map a sort of dynamic landscape of cloud transformation in the air uh, so that we can time every image so that if we see two images that have the same cloud, we say, okay, this is the same time. Um, of course, the clouds that we're talking about are not meteorological. They are bomb cloud, but they behave like meteorological cloud. They are continuously transforming themselves, although they're anchored in one space, more or less. I, th I think you, I heard you once saying they are pulverized buildings, pulverized architecture. Yeah, the, the clouds are actually everything that the building was. It's composed of brick and, and plaster and wood and glass and building remain and human remains and all that becomes this kind of like cotton wool that, that exists in the air for eight to ten minutes. And uh, so it's, in a sense, one could think about it as architecture in gas form. Uh, if you like, that is a kind of the, the form of destruction. The, that kind of, this is, you know, you can look at the, at the hard ruin on the ground, but in this project we were looking at the soft, temporary ruin in the air. But I have to say that looking at the architecture of bomb clouds, except of the fact that we needed a lot of the tools of like blob architecture and parametric design in order to understand the interaction of air and pressure with, with, with that form, is that they represent something fundamental about all architecture. Right? They're kind of like the extreme case of the temporariness of elasticity of the relationship between force and form. Clouds are the manifestation of the political plastic that I started to speak about at, at the beginning, i.e. all buildings are temporary, politics operate on form by continuous transformation. And here you have a form that is a diagram of the forces around it from which you can look at it. Now, when we synced up the sky, we simply inverted the entire landscape and looked at a at at part of the earth and saw the civilians and started telling the stories of the civilians uh, there. Now what is was very distinct in this investigation sorry, was that the civilians we interviewed each remembered an the anchors in their memories were the clouds or sorry, were the bombs and they were telling us the stories from underneath those clouds and to a certain extent, then the cloud brought matter, i.e. the building material, image, as in the videos and, and satellite images and uh, video images and photograph of the cloud, uh, and memory. So it's kind of like a hinge 
that connected all the elements of forensic architecture, matter, media, and memory uh, together. They are kind of, in a certain sense, they become almost this kind of Heideggerian uh, object, pull the worlds together, the thing that brings them together. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad because this really gives me a good segue towards my last questions, which which is maybe a, a little bit more of a looking more generally at what forensic architecture as a collective is doing and um, and really uh, being uh, very much inspired by um, the very beginning of the, your introduction in um, in this uh, this book forensics that has been collecting uh, many case studies that you've been many investigations that um, forensic architecture has been doing which is the notion of prosopopoeia, which, which is uh, the, the speech of a thing. And uh, its, um, uh, its loop, uh, its, um, so how, how to make buildings speak, but also how to make speech become buildings, in, which is also something you do at Forensic Architecture. Could you, could you maybe address that as a sort of conclusion of this conversation? Yeah, I think that there's been... Um a certain misunderstanding somehow plagues our uh, the, our history in which it seems like we replace the witness uh, with uh, the, the human with a certain materiality of the object uh, this is I, I see by your question that, that that you don't you don't understand it in that way but I wanted just to um, to make it clear that For us, forensis, forensic architecture is a move that always exists between subject and object. Forensics animates the object and objectifies the subject. It creates a certain zone between them that is part human, part non-human. This is the zone, this is the kind of the gray area in which we operate. It does not interest us simply to look at objects or we do not feel we, that we have something to contribute in simply speaking about the memory of the subject, right? For us, the fertile zone is that ambiguity where skulls and buildings start to speak and when people start to remember through um, engagement with objects, whether they are material object or buildings, whether they are animated, digital or physical, whether it is by looking at images or looking at maps. It is that what is happened between the piece of evidence that never speaks for itself and the person, either the expert or the witness, that is somehow pulled into the objectivity into the object and then something else happens right this is this is the this is the area in which we operate right this this kind of overlap between object and subject and quite rightly you you, you put it very beautifully when you said prosopopeia operates in two ways prosopopeia the kind of the uh, greek rhetorical principle operate both in the kind of the animating of of material objects, making them speak, and it actually kind of creates objects. On the other hand, this inverse prosopopoeia allows to create objects through speech. 
Now, the problem with forensic architecture, now increasingly this occupied an enormous part of our bandwidth, is um, creating evidence from memory, creating evidence from testimony. Very often, governments who always would operate to restrict counter-forensic of their work, they would re- if they can, they would restrict the flow of images. They cannot. So we have it. So in Gaza, for example, they restricted, what they managed to restrict is access to the material. They did not, uh, to the material reality of the ruin, which Galasco had access to finally. We did not. Um, they did not manage to get it, to restrict access to the media, the media we had. And to memory, we could even remotely communicate with people. Um, sometimes the Assad in, in uh, the Assad regime in Syria uh, is able to restrict both media and material evidence. And what you're left with, remember the three categories that are material, media, and memory, right? You're left only with memory. So, how do you construct, how you use memory to construct architecture? And how do you use architecture to induce memory? So it's like two two processes that, that, that we do when we work with people who are who have experienced something. On the one hand, you know, together we build a model and it's very you know kind of uh, participatory practice by which the uh, witnesses, sometimes victims, would build a model of of where they've been. And finally, we have, and we see where it is. This is this is one thing. What is much more interesting for us is the way how the process of building something, how the very mundane measurements of floor tiles, of hatches, of doors, of heights of ceiling, of level of moist, of sound, all of a sudden can trigger memories that were otherwise repressed, because witnesses to trauma might remember a lot of things before the traumatic moment and after, but there's something about violence that is also an erasure of memory. It operates on memory sometimes in other and very unpredictable ways. And architectures can sometimes, sometimes not. It's a very um, uh, sort of indeterminate process, but it increases the possibility for recollection to occur. Uh, if if uh, somebody builds, never mind walks through a rendering of space, but actually builds that space, sometimes at the moment where somebody describes the size of tiles and how many tiles in a room, a kind of a memory of a, of a form of torture that was extremely repressive and extremely hard was articulated in... Uh, all of a sudden returned, or another witness that we asked to model a door... Was uh, simply by the measurement of the door, has recalled a form of torture that was otherwise inaccessible. So, again, this kind of prosopopeia and inverse prosopopeia bring us into architecture, and I believe fundamentally this is what architecture is: is a kind of a zone that is between object and subject, and obviously. Um, the that zone between object and subject uh, can be 
are captured and inhabited by media. So if you remember, media, subjectivity and the object makes together that what we believe is the fundamental component of architecture and of course also in that sense of forensic architecture. Well, Eyal, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me at the end of a long day of work and uh, I'm, uh, I'm extremely happy and honored to have uh, to have this conversation uh, as part of the next uh, the next issue of the Finalist. Thank you very much. Thank you.